That song we just sang is one of my all-time favorites. And in fact, that'll be one of the songs that they sing at my funeral. Now, this will be a surprise to no one, but I've already started making notes to pass on what I want to happen. <laughs> I want to have my one last word, I guess. And they wouldn't dare not try to grant my final wishes, right? <laughs> well, two weeks ago, uh, I brought you a message uh, from Jesus over in Matthew 6. And if you were not here, I entitled that message, uh, Beware Treasure Seekers. And because Jesus, there and in numerous other places, warns and cautions against the potential imbalance in our worldview between earthly wealth as opposed to eternal wealth. Earthly treasures, material possessions, can be deceptive. Jesus told us that we can't serve God and mammon, that is, God and money. Jesus told us, as we looked at it back then, that where our treasure is, that's where our hearts will be. And where our hearts are will reflect and direct what our true priorities and affections in life are all about. And this is a significant dimension of being a disciple of Jesus. Are you aware that almost half of Jesus' parables deal with material riches? For example, we referenced it, but we didn't look at it in detail, and we won't this morning, but one of his other parables, the rich farmer over in Luke 12, is the man who started gathering so much, so much, he took pride and confidence in building bigger barns to store more and more stuff, and then all of a sudden he died unexpectedly. And Jesus' comment about that parable was, so is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus actually says, you fool. So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, despite the grain of truth and the bumper sticker you've probably seen around town, money can't buy happiness, but it helps you to choose your own misery. Despite that grain of truth, uh, Kevin DeYoung, uh, a pastor in North Carolina, and by the way, if you've not discovered Kevin DeYoung either through listening to messages or reading any of his books, I commend him to you. In fact, uh, Breckley Ernie, doesn't your older sister go to his church? Yeah, I, I thought so. Uh, Jack and Kelly Neal's uh, uh, other daughter. But anyway, um, Kevin DeYoung, in a book he just came out this year, uh, gives this quote, and I think it's worth passing along. It is impossible to have any sort of debate over whether or not Jesus believed that rich people were in big trouble. There is too much evidence on the subject, and it is overwhelming. And if you've read through Jesus' parables, you know that what he has said is absolutely uh, on target. Well, in our text that I've chosen for this morning, we find that the Apostle Paul is following Jesus' practice of teaching truth by means of analogies. The case in point in 2 Corinthians 9 being the farmer's field with reference to sowing seeds and producing a harvest. And just a quick word about the context. The Christians back in the church in Jerusalem 
had reached a point at the time Paul was writing this letter to where not only were they experiencing significant persecution from Jewish leaders as well as the Roman government, but also a famine had stricken that part of Judea. And so some of them were actually scratching out an existence day to day to be able to eat. And so on one of Paul's missionary journeys, he began sharing this plight with the churches in Macedonia and over on into Greece where Corinth is. And he was encouraging these churches, many of them comprised mainly of Gentile believers, to get together a relief fund, a gift of money for him to carry back to Jerusalem to help these brothers and sisters in Christ. And apparently a year earlier, the Corinthians had made a gesture to contribute But for some reason, they had not followed through. And so to rekindle their intention, uh, Paul gives two examples of what we would call grace giving that's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And to rekindle their intention, Paul gives two examples in particular. The first is how generous and liberal the Macedonian churches had given to this cause And then secondly, in chapter 8, verse 9, he gives the example of Jesus himself when he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And of course, when he says that we would become rich, he means rich in having the relationship with God through Christ and all that salvation brings to us. So here Paul explains the proper attitudes and motivations for how we go about being rich toward that God and how we go about planting and sowing. And he goes on to describe the harvest that furthers the kingdom of God that we get to share in. But let me read the text, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And as you can see, I've supplied a little brief outline there that 
Uh, what Paul unfolds here first is the characteristics of grace giving, which is comprised of three adjectives. In verses 6 and 7, and then verses 8 to 15, he describes the harvest that comes from grace giving, which also has three main points to it. I'm not compelled to always have three points, but when the apostle does, I just follow his lead. So, these three adjectives, the first is that grace giving is characterized by being generous, by generosity. Uh, the translation I read from, verse 6, that we'd be giving bountifully. And he sets forth a principle here that is really true in all areas of life. And that is, and of course those familiar with agriculture, or even if you've had your family garden, you know what he's saying, that as a man sows, so shall he reap. If a man sows little, he reaps little. To give, in this context, is to sow. It is not lost, but rather it yields a harvest that there are spiritual returns on this kind of investment. And it's not just talking about the quantity of what we may be giving, but probably more importantly is, is the quality. As one commentator put it, the source of giving is not the purse, but ultimately it's the heart. And that's what Paul is certainly getting at here. And an evidence of that, of course, is uh, the example that just Jesus gives about the Jewish leaders. Uh, he's sitting there on the side of the temple. He sees these Pharisees and Sadducees coming in, and they're dropping copper coins and being very conspicuous about how much coins they're putting in because Jesus says they're trying to draw attention to himself. But then he talks about this widow who gave all that she had, the two mites. That was like a penny. And before God, in terms of the heart, hers was the gift that was most pleasing to God. Now certainly, what Paul is saying here is describing a harvest and results in our lives that are both material as well as spiritual. And by material, he talks about that giving graciously, that God honors that by being very gracious and enabling us to have the resources uh, to give graciously. And I want to come back to that point in just a moment. But of course, we need to inject here, and I know I don't need to with this congregation, but I, it needs to be said in case somebody hears this out on the website. Uh, the prosperity gospel, as it's called, is a serious, erroneous departure from the teaching of the Bible. And back when I was first coming up as a young Christian, uh, there was one uh, pastor who was nationally known that uh, introduced what he called seed faith and misapplied verses like these. And so the simple equation of that is if you give $10, God will bless you with 100 like uh, the next month. So the more you give, the more money God will dump on you. Well, what does that do to one's motivation? If the reason we're giving is because we just want to get more, uh, so that we're more comfortable, and again, we'll comment on it in a moment, that's not the reason why God gives the increase to us in the harvest. In fact, to show that this harvest is really more spiritual in nature, what does he say at the end? 
well, I just lost my place, excuse me, uh, right at the uh, end of verse 10. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. That someone who has the heart to be generous and give graciously to the kingdom of God and all of its aspects, in this case, it's helping people who are impoverished, but also it includes other efforts that further the kingdom of God, whether it's mission-oriented, local churches, uh, the list you know, could go on and on, but all those things that would fall under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. Talk about uh, generosity. I have, to, I have to bring this to your attention because, and I'm not bragging when I share this with you, but I am blessed by it, and I hope you'll be encouraged. Brad showed me this letter that he received from the uh, executive director of CIRA. That's the uh, pregnancy center that we have supported for many years here in Gainesville, uh, doing what we can to help with the preserving the life of the preborn. And it had to do with this baby bottle campaign that we just participated in. Dear Pastor Brad, your support in our baby bottle fundraiser has been amazing, and the results were incredible. There will be many lives saved and changed because of the generosity of the people from the chapel of Gainesville. The total amount given in support of CIRA was $5,575.62. And that's, I mean, I'm impressed by that. I'm grateful to God that we generated that. But this was the other thing that struck me that's not in the letter, but Brad told me that they informed him that 16 churches in the greater Gainesville area participated in this baby bottle campaign. And we were the top giver of the 16 churches. In fact, the second most was $2,000 less than what we generated. Now, I'm not saying that to disparage the other churches. I don't know their abilities. I'm just saying that God bless you for being generous and God will honor that as we seek to continue to do that kind of thing for these worthy causes. And so I hope you find encouragement from that, because I do. And again, we give thanks to God because of some of the other things we will acknowledge here in this text, that we don't take credit for that. It's not like, aren't we just super? But this is because of the grace of God in us that we are motivated uh, to do this. In fact, I mentioned the context of this. If you'd flip back over to chapter 8, uh, the chapter just before this one we're looking at. In just the first four verses, this tells you something about generosity with these Macedonian churches. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability... And beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Do you see the disposition that is reflected in those folks in those churches? That that kind of a commendation, may that be said of, of our church and of all of God's people. But God will provide a harvest. And again, we're walking a fine line here. 
We don't do it in order to get the reward, but the fact is when we do so with a correct heart, with correct motivation, God does honor that. Jesus said in Luke 6, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So that's not what we're aiming for, but it is what we can expect. I hope that doesn't sound contradictory. It's not what our motive and goal is, but we can expect, even as Jesus says it right there. It's possible to give selfishly, and that's one of my concerns about the prosperity gospel. How much of this is self-centered in giving money with the anticipation I'm going to improve my own financial status by doing this, rather than thinking, I have the joy of giving this because it's going to help further the cause of Christ. The second adjective is that grace giving is purposeful. Give as he says there in verse uh, 7, for each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, uh, not grudgingly. The word there in the Greek New Testament for purpose just simply means to choose beforehand. So he's saying that we should be thinking in such a way that we are planning and calculating how we can give, how much we will give. And so we give as we have decided in our own heart. I think this helps bring a correction to perhaps that casual attitude that we just sort of give on the spur of the moment. Oh, I happen to have some cash in my purse, I'll throw it in the plate. It, it's, not, uh, it's not to be a giving that is emotionally driven. It's not to be erratic. But it is to be something that we have purposed to do, that we have prioritized this cause or that. One paraphrase on that verse translated it, everyone should do as he's made up his mind to do. You know, I think often uh, we sometimes slip into this mistaken notion that we know the New Testament and Jesus has such an emphasis on our heart, what's going on with our heart. And sometimes we forget that that was also integral to the understanding that was given to Israel about how they related to God. Uh, let me just dip back over to the book of Exodus of all places. And there's about 10 chapters in Exodus that are devoted to the instructions that God gives to Moses about constructing the tabernacle, which was the tent of meeting where they met to worship God. And it's very detailed. I mean, there's 10 chapters after all. It's very detailed as far as the colors, the fabrics, the materials, everything about it. But they were having to take a contribution from the people of Israel in order to construct this tabernacle. And so at the beginning of that section, it says in verse 2, Moses says, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Whose heart moves him. And then near the end of that section, as the people start giving, 
Listen to how repetitious uh, this is. In chapter 35, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, which literally means everyone whose heart was lifted up and everyone that was made willing. I'm just going to run through the chapter. Verse 22, Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches, earrings, signet rings, bracelets, all articles of gold, and did every man who presented an offering. Verse 26, All the women whose hearts stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair and the stones for setting of the breastpiece. Verse 29, the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them. And it leads us to a climax that has got to be one of the most unique commands in all the Bible. Because once they had mustered all of these contributions, Moses issued a command A proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. They were bringing so much, he had to tell them to stop bringing the contributions. I love that. This is a command from God, stop giving. I don't know how often that appears, but it catches my eye. And so... Because of being stirred in their heart and appreciating the cause of what they were giving to, which was to be the the location and the center point of their worship of the one true God, their hearts were inclined uh, to do it generously. You know, a family came to mind as I was putting this message together this week. I think this is going back far enough that a lot of you probably wouldn't remember this family, but uh, because they've... They moved away probably oh, six years ago or so. But there's a family that came to Gainesville that landed in our church, and the husband was changing careers. He had been in one career for 10 years. He decided that their needs were such that he needed to go back to school, so they came cross-country, and he uh, enrolled in a program at the University of Florida that had them here for, uh, for I think, at least two years. And they had children. I was not aware of this, but when he graduated and got his first job in another part of the country, uh, which was a very good job, uh, he informed uh, Brad and I that they were not able to give the entire time they were in our church. They loved our church, they loved the teaching of the Word, they loved the fellowship and, and the love that was here, but... They, had, they were just really scraping the barrel to get through this program. And we're really relying even on family to pay their rent. And so he said, because we've not been able to give and we're now settled in our new job, uh, we just want you to know that we are sending our tithe back to the chapel for the next two years uh, to make up for the time that we were there. Now, I don't even know, I choose not to know such things, I don't know whether what they were sending was $20 a month or $200 a month. And I don't care. What hits me is their heart 
and their love for this church and this congregation that it ministered to them in a way and they ministered to us that they were motivated to even think in these categories. And at the end of the two years, they wrote a letter and said, we feel like it's time to start supporting our local church where we are now, which of course is totally understandable. But it says a lot about their heart and that's what hits me the most. I don't even think we necessarily needed the money at that time, so to speak. But it showed where their heart was and they uh, did it purposefully. The third adjective is we're to give cheerfully. Now maybe you think it's a little odd that he would say not grudgingly or under compulsion, but I understand exactly what he means because I think I've had occasions in my life where probably I was giving because I felt like I had to, but I really didn't want to, and it's going to make us short this month. You know, that kind of, I hope you've had that internal meshing of gears at some point. I'm not the only one. But see, we can give and treat it as if it's just a duty. Have you ever been to a church service? And even you may not even be a part of that church. Or maybe you are a part of it. They're passing the offering plates as we did a few minutes ago. And you just grab in your pocket, even if it's $2, you want to put something in because you're afraid it's going to look bad when the plate passes by you that you're not putting anything in. Anybody ever done that? Some do it uh, because they want a good reputation. Uh, Jesus has strong words for those kind of folks in Matthew 6, 1 to 4. No reward in heaven is what he says about these people that want to make a big show uh, of what they're doing to give at that time uh, to the temple. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't required to give up all their property, but they claimed they did even though they were lying. So why were they doing that? They wanted to look good, and they wanted their reputation to be good amongst the rest of the church. Some people give just because it's an income tax break. Now, don't get me wrong. I think to be responsible stewards, it's good to take advantage of every break there is that the IRS gives us. And that, certainly that's a, a benefit of it, but it shouldn't be your main reason. Perhaps most sadly, some give because they somehow it's earning favor with God that if I just put money in the plate, not thinking about so much their need for repentance and forgiveness, but thinking that somehow they're going to earn favor with God because they give so much to the church. So grudgingly under compulsion, um, we want to be careful again that we're giving because God has blessed us and enabled us to be in a position to give to his work. Some churches, as you know, uh, give giving financially a bad name. They use high-pressure tactics. They use emotional manipulation. My wife's parents uh, were a part of a, a very large church, where, I mean, huge in a very, very wealthy area of Miami, red brick, white steeple, a couple thousand people. And they had a big uh, thing to increase their budget and do some major renovations. And they had a huge scroll mounted at the front of the church, and people walked up 
and wrote a figure and signed their name what they would give. Now, I hope that makes you shudder. It makes me shudder. But anyway, they signed their name of what they were giving. And so people were asked, you know, to commit how much they would be giving to the church the next year. Well, my father-in-law was quite surprised when he got a notice from the church like you would get from MasterCard. You're behind on your giving. And he was confused because he filled out the form, but because Priscilla's mom was also working, she thought he was filling out based on his income, and she was filling out one based on hers, whereas he filled out his to cover both their incomes. So that made it look like they were short. So he got the letter, you know, you're delinquent. I, I don't know. That just, that just rubs me wrong. I had to get that out of my system. Um, <clears throat> so, but uh, cheerfully, you know, I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times, but it is humorous. The Greek word there is hilaros, where we get our English word hilarity or hilarious. And he says we're to be a cheerful giver or a glad, merry, uh, a, a joyousness as we're giving. It's interesting. Um, maybe you hear a pastor from time to time reference the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a group of Jewish scholars uh, about 100 years before Jesus who got together and translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek since so much of the known world was speaking Greek. So they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so sometimes it's interesting to see what Greek words they use to reflect the Hebrew word. And they use this word in the Septuagint to translate Psalm 104. And the Hebrew word was teshal, which means to make one to shine or to make shining. And so you add that thought that we are giving in such a way that even our faces would shine uh, as we give. Well, he goes on to describe the harvest from this grace giving in verses 8 to 15. And you can see there are, there are three things. The giver is enriched, the recipient's needs are supplied, and God is glorified. When a person is willing to give, God makes it possible for them to continue to give. God will provide a harvest, so much so that the giver will be granted, as he says here, sufficiency. God's abundant provision, and it's so abundant, verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything so that you can increase your bank balance? No. So that you may have an abundance for every good deed. So what he's looking for is the person who graciously gives and expects the harvest of being blessed so that they can continue to do that. And God will always honor that. We had a couple of electricians come over to the offices the church is renting for the staff, and there were two guys, an apprentice, and the older guy, and the younger guy had a T-shirt, and I've seen this, you can't outgive God, was on the front of his shirt. Kind of an interesting message for an electrician. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so the abundance is to what end? 
for every good deed, uh, to increase our harvest of righteousness, as he said in verses 9 and 10. Engaging in good deeds is an expression of righteousness. It doesn't provide our righteousness. It doesn't make us righteous, but it is a reflection that Christ has made us righteous. You know, the way wealth and riches are treated in the New Testament is they tend to ascribe the most positive thing about riches and wealth and treasure to the things that we inherit spiritually. I'm not going to read you a whole list, but one or two examples. When Paul's writing to the Colossians, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I think we referenced this two weeks ago, but it certainly bears repeating. Paul says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And one of the churches that was so generous was the church at Philippi. And Paul makes it clear uh, as he is writing to them and thanking them for their generous participation. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma that he was pleased to get, but more importantly, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Of course, the practical need is met. The recipient's needs are supplied. And as their needs are supplied, it strengthens the bond of fellowship. How do you think many of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who don't know where the next day's meal is coming from receives this financial gift from these churches in Macedonia? Don't you think that that knit their hearts to those folks they hadn't even met? And in fact, he says, you know, that very thing. He says in verse 14, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Uh, he, he said uh, at the end of chapter 8, verse 24, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. So it helps to ignite prayer for each other in this kind of grace giving. And also it is a demonstration, it's a proof of their love for fellow Christians that most of them will never meet. So it, it fuels prayer on the part of those giving for those in need and those in need receiving and appreciating that. And my former pastorate, uh, the church had a sister church in Haiti, and the first time I went down with the group, uh, I suppose, Tom, they still do this, uh, 
There's some time during the days we're there where you sit with the pastor and all the deacons of the church in a big circle, and you just kind of talk about what's going on in the respective churches, but you have a time of prayer. And we went around and asked for prayer requests, and they were personal as well as church-wide requests. And one of the people in our group asked prayer for his wife back in Gainesville because she had gotten a very serious medical diagnosis. Well, we returned, and then a year later, we were back. And when we gathered with those believers there in that Haitian church, we were kind of catching up, and one of them said, how was the wife of that man who had them? This is a year later that they've been praying. I didn't even remember the guy had asked for prayer. But the relationship between the two churches and a lot of the help that we were giving and helping them in their ministry, that it does establish that kind of a relationship uh, between people that strengthens the bond of Christ. Our time is elapsing, but finally, and I would say this is the most important aspect of it all, God is glorified. Paul says in verse 11, it produces thanksgiving to God. In verse 12, he says, there's an overflow to many thanksgivings because of their generosity. The absence of a thankful heart stifles Christian growth and Christ-likeness. An absence of a thankful heart stifles Christian growth and Christ-likeness. Which, by the way, on the note of being thankful or ceasing to be, I heard about two elderly women who made it their practice every year after the first of the year to get together and have a meal and kind of catch up on the year and what's been going on. And one of them across the table said to the other, she said, you know, every year uh, I send a Christmas card with a check, which is a very generous gift to every one of my grandchildren. She said, but I don't get a call, I don't hear from them, I don't see them. The other grandmother said, well, I also give a very generous check to all of my grandchildren that I sent to them. And I usually hear from them or even see them within a week. And she said, how does that happen? She says, I forget to sign the checks. <laughs> that's, that's a tip for the grandparents here today. But he says, I knew that would go over because I shared that when I preached over in Carabelle about a month ago with that congregation. A lot of grandparents in that church. But <clears throat> verse 13, he says it will glorify God. Verse 13, the proof verifying the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, as we've already noticed, strengthens the bonds of fellowship. There's this reciprocal mutual prayer. But what I want you to see as we bring this to a close do you see the theological and doctrinal underpinnings to this call to generous giving? It's just not a matter of there's a need, you need to give to it. Hey, you're a rich person by any standard today, you need to be sharing that. The theological underpinnings to all this and the vocabulary is, is unmistakable. When I read chapter 8, verse 1, make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches. In verse 6 of our text, and also verse uh, 7, about from the heart, verse 8, all grace 
He speaks about their righteousness. And in verse 14, as he's closing out this chapter, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, which is likely ultimately a reference to the Lord Jesus and what he has uh, given us. So our whole approach to material riches and being rich toward God is wrapped up in God's grace in our lives and that grace overflowing in our generosity to the kingdom of God and to his people. A couple of final words of encouragement. You know what a steward is. We need to see ourselves in relationship to our material possession as stewards. A steward in the ancient world, and it's certainly true in the days of the New Testament, was a manager of a household. He would oversee the functioning of the family's needs and running the house, and at times it even included overseeing the master's investments and business affairs. The steward was never the owner. He simply managed what belonged to the owner. And that is the way we need to see whatever amount of resources God allows us to have. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter makes this or writes this statement, be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. So we are stewards of all that God gives us in terms of gifts, time, talent, and treasure. And how we handle and spend our money is important, as I said, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I told you it was a major emphasis in Scripture. Do you know in the Bible, the term faith appears 500 times? The term prayer appears 500 times. Money and riches is referenced 2,000 times in the Old and New Testaments combined. Martin Luther, we've been talking about him a lot during this Reformation season and the first hour at 9 o'clock. Um, I think he says this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of hard to know with Martin, but once he said there are three conversions necessary to eternal life, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the wallet. And he said the latter is the most resistant. But we would do well to remember what it says in Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth. The New Testament and Jesus are not anti-rich, per se. But the way Kevin DeYoung, that I referenced a little while ago, says it in this book, he makes the distinction between the wretched rich and the righteous rich. And we do need to arrive at the mindset that we are truly just stewards. We give generously because that's the response of grace-saved people. May God add his blessing to the reading and teaching of his word. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, the 
number of people in this room this morning represents a diversity of resources, of income. And Lord, from those who have much and those who have little, the call upon our lives are the same. It's to be generous and to be gracious in our giving as you enable us to do so. And Lord, help us to truly keep in mind that everything we have is ultimately yours. And help us to look at our own personal situations as not a matter of how much I'm going to give, but how much you would allow us to keep. And Lord, that is not easy to do. This is a, a lifelong uh, curve of, of learning, but I pray that we would become, uh, each one of us, every household would become more and more generous from the heart. Not because you need it, but because we need to be like Jesus in giving it. And I pray this in his name. Amen.